You and I, as we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey, have to realize that we are almost halfway through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it is here that Paul is going to remind us of our purpose, our aim, that we are not just here taking up space, but we are here to take up the cause of Jesus Christ as we carry our cross. You see, it's here that Paul is going to remind us of our attitude that will either affect or infect our actions. That instead of you and I being complainers and caught up in the arguments, that we should rejoice and we should serve. Why do our words and our walk matter? Because they will either confirm or contradict our witness before Jesus. You see, it's here that you and I are going to be reminded that as we live out our salvation through the power of God, we can have not just a great testimony and a great witness, but we can have great joy found in Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Philippians 2.12, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. Now, as you read that, it's very obvious the main point of the passage, our aim, why we are here, what we're supposed to be doing. But what's very interesting is that Paul doesn't start with the most important point in the passage, our aim, he starts first with appreciation. Before he preaches, he praises. Why? What happens in your life when the people that are leading you take you for granted? What happens in your life when when all they point out are the problems? Everything that you're doing wrong, and they just seem to miss the few things that you're doing right. We tend to close our ears, don't we? Because at that point, it's just a lecture. It's not really love. And what I want you to see here is is there are problems. And Paul deals with the problems, but he starts with praise. As you interact with people, are you going to focus first on the problems or on the praise. And I want to model that for us as a congregation tonight. 
As we were leading up to Christmas, I asked you to sacrificially give above and beyond your regular tithe to encourage and to support our missionaries with an extra gift as we came to Christmas. And as a body of believers, above and beyond your regular tithe, you gave congregationally almost or just over, excuse me, $10,000. That tremendous blessing. That they know that their church body appreciates them and cares for them. I also asked you to give towards a backpack program in India where Berean pastors, Indian pastors, would be able to go over to the next village from them. And as they met these families that their kids couldn't go to school because they didn't have supplies, they would be able to gift them these backpacks and then use that to be able to talk about a greater gift that God gives, the gift of salvation. And you gave a little over $2,000 for that. You see... Corporately, as a Berean fellowship, all 60 churches, our goal was $10,000. This one church gave 20% towards that. You see, at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, over a thousand meals went out to hungry families. And I want to say thank you. I want to tell you as a congregation how much I appreciate you. And sometimes we get so caught up in the problems. Is this a perfect church? No. But what would happen if all we talked about were the problems and we didn't celebrate the praises? As you think about the people in your life, is there anybody that you're taking for granted? You know how easy it is for us to get comfortable in our marriage relationship and to take our spouse for granted? In fact, the only time we ever notice... Anything that they do is when they don't do it. And all we see it is as a problem. But we don't point it out as a praise when they're doing that. Guys, when was the last time you seasoned your speech with words of appreciation when it came to your wife, your kids? Ladies, when was the last time you seasoned your speech with words of appreciation when it came to your husband? Man, it is so easy to get caught up in the complaining, isn't it? And it's like, complaint department, take a number. That's, that's how we, we just check out at that point, right? How many times has your husband come home late because he's working hard? And you're frustrated about the fact that he's not there to help with kids, or he's not there to help with this, and so we, we jump right into the criticism and the problems, but we don't ever say thank you for sacrificially serving this family and for providing. And so I want to encourage you, before you preach, praise. Before you point out the problems, praise. Paul starts here by saying, dear friends, and literally this is translated, my beloved. And he's revealing something to us here that is absolutely critical. In order to lead people, you have to love people. You see, we are not being taught that in leadership lessons today. We are being taught, here's what all the successful people do. They make it about themselves, and yet what did Jesus do? Highly successful life, right? He made it about other people. You see, success comes when we're willing to serve and to be a servant. 
you and I will never really lead people unless we love people. Now, those of you that God has blessed to be able to have a business and to employ people, I want to ask you, are you lovingly leading them? Pastors, you're called to be a shepherd. As a shepherd, do you love your sheep? Now, it is possible to get stuff out of people without love. We, we can milk people for production, and, and we can get what we want out of them, but if we're truly going to lead them, we have to love them. Paul also starts here by saying, therefore, and we're very familiar with this phrase, Whenever there's a therefore in Scripture, we have to ask the question, what is it there for? What is its purpose? What is its function? Is it pointing back at a previous point in the passage, or is it pointing ahead to another point in the passage? How does it provide context for us? Do you realize context is absolutely critical when you and I study Scripture? Because it's so easy to pull things out of context. And what we discover here is the therefore is pointing backwards to the example of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is because of Christ's example, you and I don't just look to Christ, we are called to live like Christ. But you notice here as a leader, Paul doesn't give himself a pass. Man, it is so easy in our relationships, especially in leadership relationships, like a pastor, a parent, for us to say, this passage is for you, but I get a pass. And, and, and what I want you to see here is Paul is living out being the Lord. He's saying, therefore, applies to me, and I have to model it before I preach to you. Pastors, parents, are you practicing what you preach? What is the motive or the reason behind you instructing the people in your life, and especially as parents? Is it, is it just a lecture or is the motive love? Is it based on just some rules you want to teach your kids or is it based on relationship that you want to teach your kids? Here is my challenge to you as parents as we enter into this new year. Spend more time trying to catch your kids doing things right than wrong. We spend so much time trying to catch our kids doing things wrong, right? And what we create is a punishment-based parenting, not a praise-based. That doesn't mean we overlook the problems, But let me ask you, when was the last time you caught your kids doing something right and you celebrated? You see, God wants to reward us for what? Good behavior. He notices when we are being obedient. And Paul here reveals some things about obedience because remember, therefore, Jesus was obedient. He humbled himself and was obedient even to the cross. Even in the hard things, he chose to be obedient. And Paul reveals here that we are to be obedient even when we don't have those leaders who are modeling the life of Christ. He reveals two things. One, it is easier to be obedient when you have leaders that look like Jesus and are living like Jesus. Because you have a physical model right there to say, okay, this person is checking in with me. I have accountability in my life. And you need to have some people in your life that you're accountable to. 
But Paul also reveals that we're not always going to have those leaders. You can't always just rely on that person. That at some point you've got to mature to the point where you're obedient to Jesus even if the preacher Paul is not there watching you, right? And we see this so prevalent in parenting, especially when we get to teenagers, Because there's this transition where they move out of the home. And now here's the question. Are they going to be obedient to the things of Jesus even though they don't have that loving leader, that parent in their life saying, are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? Are you going to get up and go and involve yourself in a common community of believers and be the church? And so, young people, I want to ask you this question. Are you currently practicing obedience when your parents are not there? Or are you only obedient when you're in their presence? Because I will tell you this, if the only time that you're obedient is when you're in their presence, you will fail miserably when you leave home. At some point, we've got to mature past needing to just Be obedient to Jesus because we've got a parent or a pastor in our life that's checking in on us and and looking in on us. Now, Paul gets to the aim here, number two. The goal for Christians. And what is that? Do you notice what he says here in verse 12? Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Now, the King James and the NIV phrase it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what confuses a lot of Christians today. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And there are a lot of people that default to a works-based salvation, that Paul is no longer preaching grace-based, where it is all determined by Christ's finished work on the cross of Calvary, but that he is now saying that we can somehow work our way into heaven by good works. Paul is not saying that. He is not saying that you and I can attain salvation through our work. So some people say, well, this is a clear part of the passage that deals with a lack of security for the believer. In other words, we have to work to maintain our salvation. That it all starts by grace. It is a gift of God. But then it's up to me to maintain that grace. Have you ever heard of a more ridiculous thing? You see, Paul is not saying that we can attain or maintain our salvation. And people that buy into that belief, what starts to happen in their life is they start to think that at some point they might lose their salvation if there's things they do or don't do. And it leads to a fear-based life. I've been around people, man, am I saved? And they're constantly wondering, when is my dad going to disown me? When am I not going to be good enough for God? And he's going to say, sorry, taking that salvation back. You're heading back to hell. You see, that's not proper theology. God makes it very, very clear that we are secure in that salvation. That we don't work to attain or to maintain our salvation. And that frees us to live a life of faith 
and not fear. I've been around a lot of people who believed you could lose your salvation, and I have never met more joyless Christians in my life. I'm being honest. Because they're always living with this fear. And what it leads to is not a love-based relationship with the Lord. It's legalism. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to maintain. I got to maintain. I'm constantly worried as to when God's going to throw me away. Now, what I want you to see here is it says work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Do you see the difference there? And the verb here to work out brings with it the connotation of completion. That we are not to give up on God. He's not going to give up on us. That, that this is not just about you and I starting the race, it is about finishing the race. And the word here to work out in Paul's day was used of a mine where there was ore or some precious gold or gems, something that had to be mined. And what he's saying is, mine it until there's nothing left, till it's completed. Only a fool would work the mine part-time, and walk away and say, I've got 80% of the treasure, 50% of the treasure, and I'm going to leave the rest in the ground. It was also used of harvest time. A time where you and I look out at the field that is ripe, filled with food, right? And what do we do? We just bring in part of the harvest. We just bring in enough of the harvest for that day. No, we bring in the whole harvest. Only a fool would leave the food in the, in the field. You see, this is a challenge for you and I to not just get in the game and compete as we run for Christ, but to complete the race with Christ. And there are a lot of people, they, they, they start, they compete, but they don't complete. Dr. Robert Clinton, professor of Fuller Seminary, did a study of male leaders in the Bible that finished and finished well. And he concluded as he looked at all of those key male leaders in the Bible, only 30% finished well. Isn't that an absolutely dismal amount? You and I, as we think about this, need to understand that we are not competing against one another. This is what messes up most Christians. We, we spend our lives trying to look better than our neighbor. We are not competing against other Christians. We're competing against our flesh, against our enemy, and against the, the course of the Christian life. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes that course is incredibly hard. Sometimes it's uphill. Sometimes in the course of running the race, you and I get criticized by other Christians. Sometimes we get falsely accused by other Christians. Do you remember that Jesus was called Satan? How would that affect your heart? And what happens is there's times where the pastor drops the ball, the church isn't doing what it's supposed to do, people are criticizing us, and we just say it's not worth it, and we quit. We competed, but we didn't complete one of the things that really breaks my heart, and I've watched this for 21 years as a pastor, 
is people who start the race but don't finish the race. I could name name after name after name of people that were on fire for Jesus and stuff happened in their life and they quit. They went back to their life before Jesus because it was easier. Do you remember what Peter did after Jesus was crucified? He said to the disciples, I'm going fishing, right? Seems pretty innocent. Nothing wrong with going fishing unless Jesus has told you that's your form of life and you walk away from it, right? He was to fish for men, not for fish. But what happened? It got hard. It got discouraging. It it, it looked impossible. You ever been there in your Christian life? So we just punt God. And what he's saying is, don't give up on God. God's not going to give up on you. But what's interesting is Peter didn't just go back to his former way of living. He encouraged the other disciples, hey, guys, guess what? I'm going to go back to fish. I'm going to go back to my former life. You want to join me? And isn't it amazing when we give up on God how that discourages other disciples? And how it encourages them to also give up on God. One of the other things that that has broken my heart over the years is Christians who just want to coast. And and so they never really grow. They they never really compete. And, And so they just sort of coast through life. And they visit the same sins and the same habits and they become slaves to the same things year after year after year. And they end up living in guilt over their failure instead of gratefulness over their faithfulness. Let me tell you something. You can't coast and go on with Christ. And we are so tempted, aren't we? Because here's how we look at the Christian life. I'm going to run really hard and then I'm going to sit on the sideline for a while. And then I'm going to run really hard, and then I'm going to sit on the sideline for a while. And then when it's downhill, I'll just, I'll just kind of coast. I'm always looking for the downhill where I can coast. Here's the thing. The culture and the currents of the culture, for those of you that are coasting, will pull you down and pull you under. Now, do you notice here that he says, with fear and trembling? What does that mean? It means spiritual things are serious things. And I think today we're getting ourselves worked up and worried over things that really don't matter. Pointless things. And yet the real serious things we don't find ourselves getting serious about. And what he's ultimately saying here is don't take God for granted. Don't start to coast in your Christian life where you take God for granted. A good friend of mine who went through uh, a couple weeks ago some major health issues, and he visited with me this week, and he shared some things that, that were very encouraging in his life. He's been retired for a while, and as he went through these health challenges in the hospital, he didn't know, am I going to die, am I not going to die? And he's like, you know, the thing that God really impressed into my heart is this. I'm not done with you. Quit, quit just taking up space and waiting to die. Get back in the race and run the race with grace. You see, I think one of the things that can happen to us subtly is many of us start to put our aim or our purpose in life and base that on our career instead of Jesus Christ. And so as long as we have our career, we feel like we've got purpose, right? But you see, an arrow that is not aimed will always miss the mark. 
And sometimes you don't realize until it actually arrives at the mark, right? And so we're living our lives and we're making the purpose our career and not Christ. It's an arrow that's not been aimed and it's going to miss the mark. But you see, we're busy running through life and that arrow's flying and we don't realize how far off the mark it is until the day we retire and a week later we're like, man, I don't don't have any purpose. I don't have any aim. Why? Because I made the goal of my life, the purpose of my life, my career, not Christ. You're going to retire from your career, but you don't retire from Christ. Now, it's here that you and I are asking ourselves the question, okay, so if I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, in other words, I'm, I'm going on with God, how do I do that? You see, it's here, number three, that we see the ability. And do you notice here, where does our ability come from? We're not pursuing God's plan in our own power. It says God is the one working in you. It's His ability in your life. But you also notice that Paul says we're to work hard. So which is it? Is it God's work or is it my work? Am I the one doing the work or is He the one doing the work? Every one of you, when you drove here tonight and you turned into the parking lot, had assistance doing that. You just don't realize it. There was a power made available to you by an invention called power steering. It's something that most young people take for granted. Because they have no idea how hard it was to turn a 2,000-something pound chunk of steel called a vehicle just in all of your own effort, right? It was really, really hard. And so they take that for granted, They think it's no big deal to turn a car, but they don't understand they have been power assisted in the process. All they had to do was turn the wheel and all of a sudden this power was available to them. And many of us, it's the same thing in our life with God. We take God for granted, right? Now you can always tell somebody that grew up without power steering because even today they will swing wide to turn. It's hilarious until they swing wide into you. I watched a couple the other day. They're driving this little tiny hatchback and they swing over to turn, right? Why? Because they still feel like it's all up to me. And how many of us are driving our lives that way? That, That we're moving over and bumping into other people and we're creating problems. Why? Because we still believe this is, has to be done in my strength. That if I'm going to run this race of grace, I've got to do it in my power. Now, how does power steering work? If you would turn the wheel, it's available. And what Paul is saying to you and I is if we would step out in obedience, that power assist is right there. If you and I would just turn our lives and orientate our lives towards Jesus, what would happen? That power is available. But you see, many of us today, we're not turning our lives towards Jesus. We're not stepping out in obedience. We're stepping out in fear, into disobedience. And so we feel like it's all up to us because there's no power there. But you don't realize until you actually turn the wheel, you don't experience that power assist, right? Until you orientate your life towards Jesus and step out in faith. Let me read to you a couple of verses that describe the power of God because I think 
We have so taken God for granted. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparable great power for us who believe. There's nothing that can be compared to God's power. Ephesians 3, 20, now to him who is able to do a little. No, it doesn't say that. It says to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, before you came to Christ, God was not working in you. He was working on you, working on your heart. But now that you are a child of God, that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he wants to work in you. Why? So he can work through you. Why does that matter that we submit to God and we we don't fight him and we allow him to do that work in us so that he can do a work through us? Because you can only take people as far as you have been. Now, it's here that, number four, you and I are reminded, after we see the ability, we are reminded of the attitude behind the aim. And attitude absolutely matters. And there's two attitudes in the passage. One is a constant complaining. This is a critical spirit, an attitude of argumenting. The second is an attitude of joy. Many years ago, I was asked to join a pastoral group, and they told me that their purpose of meeting was to pray for their people. And that sounded like a great thing, something that pastors should be doing. And so I went, and it didn't take me long to realize they spent more time complaining about their sheep than praying for their sheep. You see, they had lost their joy because they were doing it and it had become a job. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to complain and criticize people and yet how hard it is to pray for people? I want to challenge you this week because many of us, we have this critical attitude. The people that you complain about the most, I want you to stop complaining about them and I want you to start praying for them. Pastors, those of you listening online, can I encourage you and remind you that without the sheep, you're not a shepherd. You're just a guy with a position and a paycheck. That's it. It is so easy for us to make serving Jesus a job and complain to where we say these kinds of things. Oh, I got to go serve on nursery this week. Right? It's become a pain in your life and not a privilege. Can I ask you, how well are you going to do serving the people if that's the attitude behind the aim? Here's the challenge for you and I. As you look at the contrast in the passage, which of those attitudes would you say dominates your life? Complaining? Criticism? Arguing? Or would you say that it is joy. You see, the attitude to which you go after the aim will ultimately determine how long you stay in the game. And I think our attitude is what's affecting our aim today. It's causing us to miss the mark. 
Now, as you and I think about our relationship with God, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the attitude that's prevalent in my relationship with God? My prayer life. Is it marked by joy or constant criticism? How many of us are constantly complaining to God in our prayer life or constantly complaining about God? How many of us have a yes, send me? How many of us are arguing with God today? I know that you've called me to forgive that person, but you don't know how much they hurt me. And we're having these arguments with God about obedience. And so we're spending our lives objecting instead of obeying. When you and I make it a job instead of Jesus, we will replace obedience with obligation. It's I have to instead of I get to. The other night, I went home, and my youngest daughter, Olivia, had this jar, and she had all of these uh, sticky letters, and she was sticking them on this jar. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm making a praise jar. And I looked at the scripture on the front of that. Let me read that to you. Psalm 103.5, he fills my life with good things. My mouth is renewed like the eagle. And so... I asked her, I said, well, what are you going to do with the jar? And she says, every time God does something in my life, I'm going to write on a piece of paper, I'm going to throw it in the jar. Every week, I'm going to write something down and put it in there, probably every day. And at the end of the year, I'm going to dump it out. And I'm going to read through what God has done in my life. Some of you don't think God's done a whole lot in your life. You know why? It's because you're not paying attention. You see, it's here that we see the action. And remember, your attitude affects your actions, number five. And what are our actions supposed to be? We are to be a witness for Jesus. Your character determines your conduct. And Christian character should determine Christian conduct. What kind of a witness are we to be? He says we are to shine like stars in the night. That means we are living in a dark time. Do you realize in the last 2,000 years, not a lot has changed in the world. It's still dark. It's just variant shades of gray. And you and I are to light up the darkness with our lives. How do you shine for Jesus? I'm going to tell you this. You will never shine for the Savior until you stand up for the Savior. You'll never stand out for the Savior until you stand up for the Savior. And there are many of us today who we really don't want to stand out as Christians. Not in this crooked world where we could be sued or criticized. We might lose it all if we shine like stars in the night. If we really are like the stars of Psalm 19 that says, night after night they shine the glory of God. This isn't a one night deal. This is every day, every night, I'm going to shine for Jesus. But we don't want to stand out for Jesus today. Here's the thing. We don't want to stand out because we love God. If we're going to stand out, it's because we want to look good, right? We're willing to stand up to look good, but not because we love God. And so what happens is we become these chameleon Christians that just blend our beliefs into the world so that we, we, we aren't criticized, 2,500 years ago, it was pretty dark. And there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
that chose not to bow to the culture. And they took a stand for Jesus. And because they took a stand for Jesus, they were an incredible witness to Jesus in their culture. And a whole nation got to see the power of God. Why? Because they were willing to stand up for what they believed. If you and I don't stand up for truth, we will fall for the devil's lies. And so I want to ask you, what are you standing for today? There is no greater cause than to stand for Jesus Christ. You know when, do you know when Stephen went ahead and, and, and preached the gospel and was stoned to death? Do you know what scripture says? It says he looked into heaven and he saw Jesus standing. Now my Bible also says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? The work's done, right? He's finished. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross? That's why he's seated. So why was he standing? Exactly that reason. Well done, Stephen. Here's the thing. If you make a stand for Jesus, Jesus will make a stand for you. You see, you and I are reminded here that the goal is not happiness, it's holiness. And there are many of us who are trying to find happiness today. We've made that the goal instead of holiness. Now, I've mentioned this many times, and I'll keep mentioning it until the Lord takes me home. And that is this. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. Happy people or holy people are happy people. And if you and I want to experience a happy life, we've got to pursue a holy life. Rarely do I see people that are happy because they chased after the byproduct of holiness instead of actually choosing to chase after holiness. And Paul reveals three words that help us to understand what that holy life looks like. He says we're to be blameless, pure, and without fault. Now, blameless means that people can criticize you. They can say stuff about you, but it's not going to stick. Because your character is Christ's character, and therefore your conduct is Christ's conduct. Now he says, secondly, that we are pure. And this has to do with the fact that we have not contaminated our lives. Pastor Ben did a phenomenal job a couple of weeks ago in illustrating that as he took a bottle of water and he went ahead and took some toilet water and he poured it in and he basically said, anyone want to take a drink? And we're like, no, it's not pure, right? It's been contaminated. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, the last one, when it says here without fault, almost seems like the same thing as blameless. Only this is a reference to sacrifices that could not have any blemish. And what he's ultimately saying to you and I is this. Live your life in such a way that you are a blameless, faultless sacrifice for Jesus. That you are living as that living sacrifice for God. Now, how does you, do you and I... If we've got this attitude of constant complaining and an argumentative attitude, what kind of a witness will that be? What does that do to our light? It tends to dim our light to darkness, doesn't it? So I want to ask you this challenging question. Are you shining or are you whining? It's a question I ask myself a lot. Because we make so much of life about ourselves, right? I'm saved. I already have a home in heaven. 
I really don't need to spend much more of my life on me. God's already given me everything, right? And yet things get hard, things don't go our way, and we spend a lot of time whining. And here's what I've discovered. The world doesn't need another whiner. It needs a witness. And so you and I are called to shine, not to whine. Can I ask you, are you shining at home? Are you shining in your parenting? Are you shining in your marriage? Are you shining in the workplace? Or have you allowed things to come into your life that are dimming your witness to a watching world? Let's talk about your marriage just for a moment because I think it is one of the greatest miracles that God gives us, this thing called marriage that allows us to have an immense ministry to the people around us. When you and I think about shining as lights and being a witness to a watching world, marriage reflects the character of God. It reflects His faithfulness, His commitment, His forgiveness. We could just keep going on and on and on. And so I want to ask you, is your marriage shining? Is it it revealing Christ to your neighbors, to your friends? Now, I don't know if you caught the news this week, but... The richest man in the world, the CEO and founder of Amazon, I think one point, oh no, one, not one point, $137 billion. Kind of hard to wrap my brain around that, right? That's what he's supposedly worth. By the way, I'm worth a lot more to Jesus than that. So the next time you get to starting to, to measure your worth based on money, stop. Base it on the Messiah and what he did for you on the cross. But you see, here's what he, he announced this week, that he uh, and his wife of 25 years are getting a divorce. Now, I want to read the statement. And again, we've got to be careful because we don't really know what's going on in people's lives. I think he put this out on Twitter, if I'm, if I'm correct. That's the way that you announce your divorce. We want to make people aware of a development in our lives. As our family and close friends know, after a period of loving exploration and trial separation, we have decided to divorce and continue our shared lives as friends. We feel incredibly lucky to have found each other and deeply grateful for every one of the years we've been married to each other. If we had known that we would separate after 25 years, we would have done it all over again. We've had such a great life together as a married couple, and we also see wonderful futures ahead as parents, friends, partners in ventures and projects, and as individuals pursuing ventures and adventures. Though the label might be different, we remain a family and we remain cherished friends. Kind of makes me wonder why they're getting divorced. I mean, I read that and I'm like, so what happened? One of the things I want you to understand is divorce is not a development in your life. We want to announce a new development in our life. It's called divorce. Divorce is not a development, it's a death. And so we're tweaking the words to sort of make it sound socially acceptable today. And here's the thing with every death, it's dark. We're not reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. They say here, after a long period of loving exploration, marriage is not loving exploration, it is loving dedication. It is a commitment. We're not marrying somebody because they're our friend and then saying, well, let's just go explore and see where this goes. 
This is a commitment before God. And so I want to ask you, does the world need just one more divorce? What do we really reflect to the culture and the church when we get divorced? And understand, God doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce. Why? Because nothing about divorce reflects the character of God. Here's the only thing that divorce reflects. The devil. Kill, steal, and destroy. And so I want to encourage you, if you're at a place in your marriage, you are struggling. You can call. We'll get counseling for you. If you're at a place in your marriage where you're just kind of taking your spouse for granted and you're coasting, I want to encourage you, get back in the game. If you're at a place where you haven't gone on a date for two weeks, then make that the next priority in your marriage. Because here's the reality. Your marriage is your greatest ministry to a watching world. Let it shine for the world to see. You see, the last thing that he reveals to us here is the assurance. And I love this. We all want to be assured, right? But Jesus, if I really follow your example and I pour my life into people, are you you absolutely sure I won't have wasted it? Because here's what we all know. We only get one shot. We don't get the time back, right? And so we're so afraid of, of, of really, truly giving our lives fully to Jesus that we hold on to part of that. And what Paul is saying here is that his joy is based on Christ, not his current crisis. He's not joyful because everything's going right. Remember, he's in prison awaiting a trial that could result in his death. He doesn't know how that trial is going to go. But he doesn't need to worry about how the trial is going to go. He needs to trust Jesus. Are you trusting Jesus in the midst of your trials? Is your joy tied to your circumstances or is it tied to Jesus Christ? And what Paul says here is is there's two aspects to joy. He says we have joy in the here and now and joy in the hereafter. We don't lose our joy. Not if it's based on Jesus. And so many of us, we get our eyes on the junk and we get our eyes off of Jesus and we lose our joy. You see, what Paul is saying is that he was being poured out like a liquid offering. I don't know about you, but that's probably not how I would describe my life. But it's not just true of Paul, it's true of all of us. We only have so much water in the jar. You only have so much time. And here becomes the question, what are you going to do with it? Now, here's the reality. We're all being poured out. You may think that by all of your activity and all of your success, and maybe you're as successful as Amazon and you've got $137 billion, you don't take it with you. It's just the time that you've got here. And the question becomes this, what are you going to invest it in? You see, all of us are being poured out. How many of you would consider that an absolute waste? I would. I mean, the carpet doesn't need water, right? In fact, it's not just a waste, it's a mess. Because when we pour our lives out for worthless things, pointless things, we don't just waste our life, we make a mess of our life and we make a mess of other people's lives. Now, how many of you would consider this a waste? You see the difference? This plant needs the water, right? 
If it doesn't have this water, what's going to happen? It's going to die. But here's the thing, church. It's one thing for a plant to die. It's another thing for a person to die. And I want you to understand that there are people all around you that are dying for a drink of what you have. If you have eternal life, are you going to squander that wastefully and just pour it out and be foolish? Or are you going to invest it in somebody's life? Because here's the reality. When you and I pour our lives into the lives of other people, we can have this assurance, my life was well spent. We can have the assurance that we will hear the words of the Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. So can I ask you, who do you need to appreciate? Who do you need to pour into? Are you making the goal the aim? Walking with God. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you allowing it to be about God doing the work in you, His ability and not yours? What kind of an attitude do you have behind the aim? Is your attitude soured to where it's going to cause the arrow to miss the mark? What kind of actions do people see in your life? Do they see you being a witness for Jesus? Do you have an absolute assurance that you're not wasting your life? Because if if you're worried a little bit and you're looking and you're going, well, maybe I am wasting my life a little bit, what course corrections need to happen? Where do you need to stop pouring your life? Where do you need to start pouring your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word tonight. I thank you for how you speak into our hearts and into our lives. And it it amazes me how many people take this passage and they they want to preach it based on Calvinism or Armenianism. But I don't see Calvin in the passage. I see Christ. And we are not called to follow Calvin. We are called to follow Jesus Christ all the way to the cross. Father, would you help us to spend our lives on you, serving the people around us. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.